Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Lance Trumbull. He is the founder of the Everest Peace Project, which is a peace organization that brings people together to promote peace, teamwork, and cultural understanding. He is one of the few people in the world that has survived the climb of the highest mountain in the world, Everest. And what he's done is he's produced an award-winning film, Everest, A Climb for Peace, narrated by Orlando Bloom and endorsed by the Dalai Lama, where he literally brought a Palestinian and Israelis together on Everest to promote peace. He is a passionate person. He's a motivational speaker. He's an adventurer. He's one of the few people that has sold everything he had to go to Nepal. And in Nepal had this inspiration to do this project. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Lance Trumbull to its rainmaking time. Good morning. After that introduction, I don't know that I need to say anything else here. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Thank you. I was watching television on a Sunday night, and I watched Everest, A Climb for Peace. I have to tell you, it was the most powerful, moving, jaw-dropping, shocking, touching movie I've ever seen of something that really took place. You could feel in this film what you're all going through. Concerns for your well-being, your concern for all members of the team, and even how people who could hate each other or may have such issues that they couldn't work together could take on something this huge and work together. I want to recommend, first of all, that everybody listening buy the documentary. It's worth having your own copy because when you forget about what's possible, Lance and this film will remind you. All kids should have this. All families should have this. This kind of a project ties everything together, but it's organic. In other words, it's the real deal. It's the tallest mountain in the world. Orlando Bloom said just a little over 2,500 people have gotten to the summit, but 200 have died doing it. That's really profound. Were you ever concerned for your own well-being? Well, yeah, I mean, the... uh... The thing with Everest is uh, you can die, and so certainly um, there is uh, that concern, uh, that issue, and it, it, but more for my own well-being, um, more than my own well-being, I was concerned about everybody's because I brought this whole thing together, and so I felt kind of like a father, so to speak. This whole project was my baby. And uh, if anything went wrong, I was going to be the responsible one. And so, you know, there were, including Sherpas and and uh, Tibetans and our team members, you know, there's 23 people on the expedition. And so I was, uh, I, I gained a few more gray hairs um, during the expedition, definitely. Ladies and gentlemen, I just wanted to let you know that the first few minutes of this interview was done on a cell phone, and normally we don't do cell phone interviews. We're now moving Lance to a Skype call. This will stabilize the interview. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much. How did this whole thing start? Give the audience the context for what inspired you, A, to give up everything, sell everything, and go to Nepal and take it from there. About 10 years ago, I was going through a very difficult time in my life, Um, a a divorce. And a divorce is, of course, never easy. And uh, for a while, I'd always wanted to go to Nepal. And I was by myself at this point in the stage of the divorce. 
And so I thought, what the heck, I'm going to do the Everest Base Camp Trek. And uh, had this absolutely incredible time, you know, the people, the culture, the, uh, of course, the the views of the, of the Himalayas and, and looking at Mount Everest and all its glory, you know, from base camp. Uh, it was just, it was phenomenal. I had this, you know, pun intended, you know, peak experience. And um, I came back from this incredible experience and I instantly became even more depressed because you have this incredible high and you come back to reality of, well, I'm still going through a divorce. I'm still by myself. And, um, you know, I think that's one thing uh, to ponder and we can uh, address this maybe later is, you know, how do you bring back into your everyday existence to these profound experiences. Uh, it was just three weeks for the first time. And uh, so I came back and I was talking to a good friend of mine and telling him, you know, what a wonderful time I had and, you know, how coming back is kind of depressing. And he said, well, I, I think you should just move to Nepal. And I said, ha ha ha, that's pretty funny. Uh, but uh, that... Uh, that thing kind of stayed with me, you know, well, why don't I move to Nepal? And I thought, well, I can think of about a hundred reasons why someone doesn't move <laughs> to Nepal. Uh, but after a few weeks, you know, more and more time came by and those hundred reasons came down to only a few reasons, you know, well, why don't I move to Nepal? Um, and one of those, one of the things I learned is that there are always reasons not to do something. And more often than not, you'll have plenty of people give you those reasons why you shouldn't do something. But um, so it, it kind of all boiled down to, you know, what's really stopping me. And one of the things that was really stopping me was, was, was finances. It's always the dragon at the gate, isn't it? Yeah. And so, you know, I'm in debt. I've got my own business. What was your business at the time? I was an online used book dealer. Really? Yeah. Selling books all over the world. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I was, you know, I, I loved it. You know, I was selling books back in you know, online, back in the early days in 1996, uh, where people were, were still saying, Hey, what's that internet thing? Anyway. So, yeah, I, I did all my finances and I realized that it would take me about three years to come up, you know, just to pay off everything and, uh, to have enough money to travel, to do all the traveling that I wanted to do and to move to Nepal. And I thought, you know what, if I wait three years, I'm never going to do it. So it was December um, 2001 at this point. And I finally just said, you know, screw it, I'm going to do it. And so I'm somebody who, I guess, basically jumps in the deep end. And so that next day, I went to the travel agent and I bought a one-way non-refundable ticket for May five. A little over five months later. That's brilliant. That's actually how to do it, is you box yourself in so you can't get out of it. <laughs> and so I uh, posted that ticket, non-refundable ticket, um, on my desk and right next to my computer screen where I'd look at it every day. And I was looking at that day, May 2nd, and I was saying to myself, you know what, Lance, this plane is going to leave with or without me. And I have to make it my duty to make sure I'm on that plane. Why was it one way, though? Why one way? I don't know. It just seemed more dramatic to me. <laughs> 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 That's the adventure in you. Yeah, it was all or nothing, you know, just kind of jumping really in the deep end. Um, 
So I thought I'd worry about the uh, the other way coming back whenever you know whenever was the time. Then I kind of thought to myself, okay, now what am I going to do? And so the only way I was going to make this happen was to do something drastic because that flight was going to be leaving with or without me. And so I proceeded to sell everything that I possessed. Um, but before I got to that point, it was it was quite difficult because we accumulate all these things. You know, our big TV, our computers, our first edition books. And, you know, we associate these things uh, as being part of us or as being us. And it took me a little while to realize, well, I'm not my big TV. I'm not my iPod or at that point my Walkman. Um, I'm not my, uh, um, you know, first editions. I'm not, you know, I'm not these things that I accumulate. And so at first, selling this stuff, getting rid of everything was... Uh, a labor in, oh, a, a difficult labor. Let's just put it that way. And the only thing that comes to my mind was, um, you know, what, what Gandhi said, which is, you know, renounce and rejoice. Well, it took me a while to, to get the rejoicing part. Um, <laughs> but after yeah. I started selling a few things, it, it, it just became, uh, it became almost fun. <laughs> it was like, okay, let's see what else I can sell. Did and you then keep I your computer? No, I sold everything. I sold my car, uh, my computer, all of my books, clothes, furniture, literally everything except a couple of duffel bags of climbing and trekking gear that I was going to take with me. What was the pull to Nepal? Well, I, I had just, you know, been, been to Everest Space Camp and had that incredible experience and um, never felt like, never felt anything like that before. And, um, you know, the things that were giving me the things that were meaningful before, you know, being married, which I was getting a divorce and having my book business, those things didn't obviously hold the same meaning for me. And so I just felt strongly pulled by Nepal and, and, and the Himalayas. And uh, so May 2nd, 2002 came along and I was on that plane uh, traveling to Kathmandu. And I remember getting off that plane <laughs> at the Kathmandu airport um, and walking down the steps and going, oh, my God, what the hell did I just do? <laughs> did you have accommodation yet? Yeah, I had planned things out and um, I had a little itinerary of what I was going to do. The first thing I was going to do was hang out in Kathmandu for a few weeks, um, acclimate, and then um, – uh, do a, a trip to this holy mountain in Tibet called Mount Kailash and do a uh, circumambulation of Mount Kailash, a little pilgrimage. And that was a, a couple of week journey. And then from there, I was going to somehow uh, illegally travel to Mount Everest in Tibet um, without a permit. I was going to break away from the group. And actually, I did all these things. I uh, had this incredible journey, uh, spent several weeks um, in Tibet and uh, from there, you know, I could you know spend hours just talking about uh, these individual stories of, you know, what it was like to uh, illegally travel and hitchhike uh, in Tibet to get to Mount Everest Base Camp and on the Tibetan side <laughs> of Everest. Um, and then, uh, you know, lots of crazy things that I did and um, what, lots of wonderful experiences. And then I went into Lhasa and then from Lhasa, I went into uh, China and um uh, went into Beijing and kept on going north into Mongolia and into Siberia and 
flew to Russia and climbed the tallest mountain, uh, Mount Elbrus in, in Russia. And, wow. And then I came back uh, to Nepal and, and did a couple of treks uh, again in Nepal. And I was in a cafe um, in Kathmandu uh, having dinner, hanging out. And uh, this guy sat down and I started talking to him. And, uh, you know, we were chit-chatting and I said, well, what, what do you do? And he says, well, I lead trips, um, you know, all, all over Nepal and India. And he said, my name is Jamie McGinnis. And I went, Jamie McGinnis. Hmm. And then I looked at the trekking book that I had in my hand and it was written by him. <laughs> wow. Like, oh, <laughs> so, uh, he said, he said, yeah, I'm going to Ladakh, India. And he said, do you want to come? And I said, Okay, <laughs> so uh, I was off to Ladakh, and um, uh, at Ladakh, India is just uh, this absolutely incredible place. And we went and did this exploratory trek um, in the mountains of Ladakh, and it was the second day of the trip, um, October second, two thousand and two, and I was about fifteen thousand feet high, overlooking this absolutely stunning valley, and. I had this epiphany. I mean, I don't know how to, uh, I don't know how to describe it. Epiphany, a peak experience, a, uh, um, uh, a major monumental insight, a, a vision, um, a religious experience. I don't know how you, I, I can't really explain it, but I got it in my head that I was going to organize a world peace climb on Mount Everest. And all of these ideas and thoughts just came flooding into my head. And I had my little notebook and, I was writing it down, you know, Everest Peace Project, you know, and then, okay, people, different faiths and cultures and a climb for peace. And, and literally for an hour, I was just writing all this stuff down. And I was just, I, I something like that never happened to me before. I just felt like I was, um, I don't know, this receptor and all these energies were flowing into me. And uh, so I, I guess you could say I felt a little bit like Frodo in Lord of the Rings that I was... <laughs> And did this task. Um, so I made a vow on that mountaintop in, in Ladakh, India, that um, I was going to make this crazy idea of having a world peace climb um, on Mount Everest uh, become a reality. And, you know, to this day, people ask me, you know, uh, where did that come from? And, you know, I just kind of say, well, you know, I was 15,000 feet high, you know, maybe it was a lack of oxygen in the air. You know what some people say is that, when you place yourself where you're drawn, what is yours is given to you. It's by grace. It's actually given to you. And that's what you did. At that point, I went back to Kathmandu, all energized. And the problem was I had really no idea of what I was going to do or <laughs> how to organize a, a world peace climb. And uh, I stumbled a bit and I learned from my mistakes and basically uh, did the ne next phase of my life, which was trying to make this world peace climb happen. And uh, so, you know, uh, the first steps were basically, you know, create a website, uh, kind of create some kind of organizational stability, and then find climbers. You know, I wanted to have a climb with teammates that were people of different faiths and cultures. And just finding a Palestinian climber took a couple of years because really they don't exist. Um, uh, it, 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 uh, it, it was, uh, we did a, a worldwide search 
trying to find uh, Ali Bushnak, our quote Palestinian climber. And um, we had a couple of Israelis on our team, and we had um, you know a, a black South South African climber, which was very hard to find. People of color uh, don't climb Everest, and so that took a couple of years. Um, we got a, a, a Hindu climber from India. And so just this whole diverse group of people, um, and of course, a climber, um, you know, I didn't want to have a bunch of stinky men just uh, on the expedition. So we got this wonderful woman uh, named Tanya, uh, Tanya Riggs on our team. And so uh, that whole process pretty much took almost three years. But the real hard part was, of course, trying to fund this thing. And I remember having a conversation with my brother and he said, you know, Lance, you've got, uh, you're doing a climb on this inherently dangerous mountain where people die each year. You've got Palestinian and Israelis on your team. Um, we're at, we're fighting two wars in the Middle East. <laughs> We've got a president, then President Bush, who's not exactly pro-peace. And you want to find a sponsor to pay for this? Are you insane? <laughs> and, uh, I said, well, maybe I'm insane, but uh, it, it, it's going to happen. Did you have a knowing about that? I don't know about a knowing. I mean, I, I just, uh, I guess you could say, yeah. I mean, I, I you just... felt it was fundable, the bottom line. Yeah, is. I yeah. mean, I, I knew that um, this wasn't a pipe dream, that uh, it, it was doable. And, and deep down, I guess you could say I'm a pessimistic uh, optimist. In other words, um, I could have these grand dreams and envision these grand dreams and know deep down that somehow it's going to happen, but I'll worry about it all along the way. <laughs> and um, Totally understood. <laughs> and that may, uh, that may go straight against um, the whole, uh, you know, be positive about anything, everything and, and things will come your way. Uh, but uh, for me, it seems to work. You know, I, I would just have this firm belief it's going to happen, but then just worry about the details. So, um, you know, I knocked on hundreds and hundreds of doors and got them all either, either no one would answer or they just open them up and then slam them, you know, straight shut back at me. And it was very frustrating because I knew this thing um, was going to be a, a great, a, a great event and a meaningful event and something that really should be done. And so I just had a firm belief that it, it, I was going to make this happen. And um, lo and behold, uh, Panasonic, uh, Panasonic Tough Books, they make um, these indestructible laptops. They came on as our main sponsor and uh, basically funded the expedition. And once they came aboard, um, we got uh, several more financial sponsors and uh, we had an expedition. So, you know, we got the team we got the the, uh, the funding, you know, everything was all in place. And now all we had to do was, you know, climb Mount Everest. <laughs> <laughs> all you had to do. Yeah, small well, little detail. <laughs> yeah. During the three years where you were still pulling in the team, calling in the team, looking for the correct people, were you at all getting discouraged you weren't going to find them? Or were you concerned also that it may take too long and five years of your life could be gone looking for the team? Or did you always feel it was worth taking the time, whatever it took, to get the right people? Well, um, yeah, I, uh, again, I, I'm somebody who, who, uh, who tends to worry a little bit. So uh, all those concerns uh, came my way. And certainly I was frustrated at times I got down. 
um, on myself. But again, I just had this core belief that this was something that was going to happen and that should happen. And um, uh, again, going back to Frodo and Lord of the Rings, you know, it, it was my, I always felt it was my mission to, to make this happen, that if I wasn't going to do it, no one else would. And um, so that's really what drove me and part feeling it was destiny and part obsession and and part just, um, you know, knock me down. I'm going to get back up uh, even stronger and harder and, and matter. How did you live during the three years that you were looking for your team? How did you function financially? Well, when you sell everything that you possess, <laughs> you come back to nothing. Um, so now the first year or so after I thought of the, uh, the uh, expedition uh, of, of the peace climb, I was still living in, um, in Asia and um, trying to, to make um, connections and network and fundraise in Nepal. And one of the things I learned is you can't fundraise in Nepal, one of the poorest countries, but I did make a lot of good connections there. And um, so I spent, uh, you know, many, many months there trying to, to do all of that. And then I um, moved to Thailand for a few months. And then at that point, um, I made my way back home uh, just because I needed to uh, try to make this expedition happen. And the only way I was going to do that was to be in the U.S. and to try to fundraise. So um, then going back to that statement I just made earlier, which is when you sell everything you possess, you come back to nothing. So I was actually sleeping on the floor at my dad's house uh, for a long time uh, trying to make this thing happen. And uh, that was not so fun, but um, it was uh, obviously a necessary step. And so it was basically part two or part three of my life trying to reorganize myself and get another foundation and to try to make this uh try to make my life happen again and try to build up this thing and, and uh, organize this uh, crazy worldwide event. What did your dad think about your commitment to doing this pre the event itself? Well, everybody thought I was a little bit crazy, <laughs> you know, um, you're going to do what? <laughs> I remember my mom, you know, just like, <gasps> oh, and then she'd turn her head in that motherly way and kind of, shake it and then say those motherly words. Well, this is what makes you happy. <laughs> That's a mother's spirit, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So most people didn't understand. Um, and they thought I was a little bit crazy. I mean, certainly when I sold everything, you know, I had a fairly successful business. I mean, I was going through a difficult time at that point, but still my, my feet were firmly planted, uh, in California. Um, and, uh, you know, selling everything that you possess and moving to a third world country is not something that, you know, people normally do. Were you scared you'd never get back? Uh, no, it didn't really cross my mind. How did you raise the money from Nepal to get back to the USA? <laughs> um, I just basically, I, I was in Thailand at that point. Okay. So the, uh, the scheming side of me thought, hmm. My family wants to see me. So at that point, I was broke. <laughs> and I, I called my, my, my parents and I said, hey, guys, so if you want to see me, um, you got you to gotta buy me a ticket home. Otherwise, I'm going to stay here. <laughs> oh, my God, that's funny. <laughs> and Well, I didn't quite put it that way. But 
Um, <laughs> and uh, they said, oh, of course, we want to see you. And then they uh, sent me this, um, you know, ticket back to the United States. And so I, I came back home and, um, you know, the, spent a couple of weeks having fun with everybody. And then the reality of, okay, I got I to gotta fundraise here and, and make this whole thing happen. How much did you actually raise to prepare everybody, bring everybody together and actually film this entire climb? Oh, lots of money. I don't want to go into specifics. Just more in terms of actually project financing. Is it a million dollar? Is it over $10 million? In other words, what does it take to have done what you did? I'm not asking what Panasonic funded. I'm asking in terms of the whole caboodle. Yeah. Well, all, all said and done, I raised hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Wow. You did that on a shoestring. I did that without any shoes, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's, uh, you know, it, it, it's when I speak to people, I talk about the three P's, you know, uh, patience, persistence, and, and passion. And, you know, patience, you know, please, God, give me patience and give it to me now. Um, right. <laughs> uh, persistence. Um, there was this, uh, uh, getting gear at that point, um, now it's a little more difficult because of the economy, but back then getting gear donations wasn't so difficult. I mean, still was, uh, but, um, you know, you could, uh, you could actually get some gear donations if you were persistent. And this one, uh, gear company, they told me no three times. And, you know, I had this, uh, the number, direct number to the, to the uh, marketing manager and I kept on bugging them and bugging them. And, and, uh, you know, finally, uh, uh, you know, I kept on getting back to him and he said, you know what, Lance, I, I can see, I'm not going to get rid of you. So I'm just going to give you this stuff. <laughs> and then he says, after that, please leave me alone. And so I just learned, learned that if you stalk somebody enough, you know, you'll get what you want. No, I'm, I'm, I'm joking there. Uh, but you know, there has to be, a certain amount of persistence um, and, uh, and and follow through, and obviously there is a fine line of knowing when to when to give up uh, and move on, and when to just hammer in and and uh, hunker down and, and continue to try to to push. And uh, that's one of the things that um, you know I learned is you know the patience part that if I just wait long enough or if I just have enough patience, some some door may open. And then if I just have enough persistence and follow through, that these things, uh, you know, I may create a situation where, you know, an opening may occur. And then, of course, the passion part. Um, if you don't have passion, you've got nothing because no one's going to believe you. No one's going to follow you. Um, and... One of the things that, um, you know, for me, the, the whole passion part is that it really it, it encompasses everything. And I wasn't always all that articulate, but people could sense in me the passion and they could feel that, hey, this guy really means what he says. You know, uh, I think what he's doing may be uh, a little bit of a pipe dream, but he really believes it. He has so much passion. And I think that's how I sold people on this is that they just, uh, you know, felt that uh, fire in me and felt that passion in me and and believed in, in what I was doing because I believed so strongly in it. So uh, I think if, if people have uh, 
some crazy dream, as long as it's realistic, you know, if you've got those three P's, the patience, persistence, and most importantly, that passion, that'll get you a hell of a long way to, to achieving that dream. How did you prepare physically? It sounds like in your climbs, even in Nepal, and a lot of the treks that you've done before Everest, it sounds like you were in great shape. How did you get in shape? What did you eat before you climbed Everest? And what kind of diet do you have to be on to do it? I, I don't think you need any, any specific diet. I uh, had a some nice hiking trails where I was living and uh, a wonderful yellow Labrador retriever. <laughs> and uh, we would just go hiking in the hills um, every day in California. And that's, you know, I'd put a heavy backpack on and every morning just head out into the hills and spend a good hour and a half, two hours hiking, getting up a good sweat and uh, lifting a little bit of weights and, you know, just stretching and exercising and, um, you know, not eating too much crap. <laughs> but no comparison to Everest. Come on. No comparison. What you're describing in California is not even in the same universe of testing and challenge. Uh, oh, yeah. Of, of, uh, of course not. Uh, but, you know, not everyone has um, Everest in their backyard or high mountains in their backyard. Right. So, um, you know, uh, one way to... to Obviously, you need climbing skills, you need high altitude skills, you need all of these things. But at the core, you need to be fit um, from a cardiovascular point of view, and you need to uh, you need to be adventurous. And so, you know, I just kind of gradually did smaller climbs and and made my way up. And um, you know, the, uh, yeah. And one one thing led to another, and I did the Nepal trek and. Um, yeah, and then spending many, many, many months in the Himalayas by myself, pretty much, um, that uh, really gave me this, that drive. And I, and I think that's what, maybe that was part of it. You know, I my fascination for Everest, and I was religious studies major at UC Berkeley, and kind of uh, those two interests or passions uh, collided together on that mountaintop in, in Ladakh, India, and the, thus the Everest Peace Project uh, was born. I went to Berkeley, too. What a wonderful school. <laughs> I'm a student of Thich Nhat Hanh and have been for some years now, who's an engaged Buddhist. And Martin Luther King felt that he should get the Nobel Prize. They haven't given it to him yet, but quite an incredible being. And I was wondering how your Buddhist perspective influenced this expedition. You know, uh, I'm not, I don't know, I'm not quite sure. I, 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 I I tell people I'm a Buddhist, but I'm not a very good one. <laughs> I mean, in that, uh, I, I, uh, I, I try to be mindful. I try to be compassionate. I try to be <clears throat> understanding and, and loving and all those things that, you know, make one a Buddhist. And, um, you know, certainly meditation is important. Um, and with all those things, um, maybe that makes me a <clears throat> more centered person in that I'm, I try to be, I try to see the intention behind my actions and, um, and maybe thus I'm a little more conscious of what I'm doing than the average person. I don't know. Um, it, it, it helps, helps me to be more, uh, conscientious, um, as a person, I think, because I can't, uh, get away with ignorance, <laughs> you know, I can't, uh, 
you know, they say ignorance is bliss. Um, you know, if, if you're ignorant, you, you just don't know any better. And if you try to be actively conscious about what you're doing, it makes it a little bit more difficult um, to get away with certain things. And so in some ways, maybe it's made life a little more difficult. Um, but in other ways, you know, I, I think if you try to be a good person and you try to, um, you know, make the world a little bit better place that hopefully things will, uh, you know, come back to you. Um, you know, the whole karma thing and what comes around goes around. And so, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if what I said answered your question, but that's uh, okay. I have a couple of questions about on the mountain, actually on the mountain. I thought it was fascinating in the film about how you have to continue to acclimate your bodies. And if you don't, you're not going to make it up the mountain. But I really want to know how far you had to go to continually acclimate. If you could describe that and what you ate and drank going up the mountain. Well, um, you know, you got to acclimate or you die, basically. You know, the body is not uh, made to, uh, to, to live at those high elevations. And so it's just a process of you know, going to a certain point, going back down to a lower point, going back up to a higher point, going back down to a medium point, going back up to a higher point. It's just kind of up and down, up and down, up and down um, till you finally acclimate. Is there a science to acclimation? Were the Sherpas guiding and pacing that or was there already yeah, a science um, you were all I, following? I was the um, expedition leader in that I was putting this whole thing together. Um, but, uh, the climbing leader was, uh, that name I mentioned earlier, Guinness, the guy, uh, who I, uh, met <laughs> several years before, uh, in that uh, cafe in Kathmandu. Um, he was our climbing leader. He had summited Everest several times and been on many, 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 um, uh, large expeditions. Uh, and then of course we had, uh, some wonderful Sherpas who had summited Everest multiple times. And um, usually they say you don't want to climb more than 3,000 feet um, higher on any given day um, once you get above about 9,000 feet. Um, uh, so except for, you know, maybe summit day. So you just it's a process of just uh, going a little bit and going back down, going up and down. And uh, that's why you're on the mountain for... Uh, anywhere from 40 to 60 days. Wow. It's, uh, it, it's, not an, it's not an easy thing being on Everest. How did you make sure that you didn't lose muscle mass during this? That's why I'm asking you about what you ate and drank and how that was taken care of. I think people would be interested in that. Well, Everest is not something you want to bring your significant other on for your honeymoon. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> it looks grueling, freezing, unbelievably uncomfortable. I actually lost 35 pounds, um, cracked my tailbone and had pneumonia. Um, so it was definitely a, a bit of suffering there. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a great diet place. In other words, uh, you can eat as much as you want and you're still going to lose weight because your body's working so hard, um, to function. I mean, just at our advanced base camp, advanced base camp is 21,000 feet. And we spent uh, a couple of weeks there and just going to the bathroom, you're out of breath. I mean, it's, it's hard work up there. 
Um, you know, the Sherpas for their part were just phenomenal. You know, um, they had a cooking tent and, you know, they'd bring us, uh, spaghetti and, and all sorts of, uh, interesting, uh, concoctions and, um, you know, uh, tomato or potatoes and little pseudo French fries and, and pancakes and things like that. But it's interesting what tasted good at lower elevation, even at base camp, which was you know, 17,000 feet up at 21,000 feet, just nothing tastes good. And, uh, so it's really hard to, to want to eat a lot. And so everybody loses weight. Um, and, uh, yeah, you, you definitely, it, it, high altitude sucks energy out of you. So it's, it's hard all the way around. How did you make sure that you didn't go through such fatigue that you couldn't function? See, there's some relationship between on your way up, what you're eating and supplementing with, and your water intake I want to hear about. What did you do about water intake and staying hydrated? Well, what a lot of people don't realize is that um, when you climb a big mountain, for the most part, you're just hanging out and waiting, um, acclimating or waiting for the weather to, to break for the next step. Um and so, uh, you know, once again, the, the Sherpas, God love them. Um, they, uh, from the glaciers, they take out big chunks of ice and in this big tent, uh, cooking tent, um, they have big pots and they, uh, they, uh, boil water basically, and that purifies it. And thus we have, uh, drinking water. And then, um, uh, up high on the mountain, you know, these are at the base camps, at base camp and advanced base camp, the two big camps. Higher up at what's called the North Call, Camp 2, Camp 3, um, that's when you have smaller tents and you have um, uh, little cooking stoves, and that's where you uh, get snow and you boil snow uh, yourself. I bet that water was great. <laughs> yeah. Get, get, you get a lot of floaties in the water, lots of these weird things that are floating around. And really? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's it, it's pretty gross. Wow. I would think it would be like this pure, pristine... No, you're... Yeah, a lot of that uh, from ice has been there for, for God knows how long, years or, um, you know, because sometimes there's not a big amount of snowfall and you're, you're hacking away at ice and that ice could be there for a long time you know, could have been sitting there for a long time. Wow. What is the bathroom situation <laughs> up on Everest? Seriously, I mean, I know you probably don't want to talk about it, but I think people would say, well, what do you do? Um, well, at base camp and advanced base camp, um, I actually got um, this company. Um, I think there were, memory holds, Philips Environmental. They had these um, wonderful environmental porta potties basically and um uh, these tents uh lightweight tents that were kind of um uh what's called bomber proof which basically means very sturdy and sit down little uh plastic potty things and they had these bat individual bags um uh that you could go to the bathroom in uh, in a sanitary way and then fold them up and throw them away and, and uh, make this pile. And we would uh, take them down off the mountain um, to go pee. Basically, it's just uh, wherever, uh, wherever you want to go. <laughs> um, and that's why you have to be careful of uh, what snow you drink, obviously. 
Um, but, uh, you know, again, at, at base camp and advanced base camp, we had these built, um, functional little, uh, uh, porta potties, so to speak, these bathroom tents. I know that you said at the higher elevations that once you're at a certain height, I think it was 17,000 feet that you can't walk more than, what is it? 3000 feet. If you're not acclimated, that's how many hours is 3,000 feet of walking approximately? Well, well it, it just depends on uh, the terrain. And, um, you know, because 3,000 feet could be many, many miles or it could be, you know, a lot less. So it really depends. You know, for example, uh, base camp is 17,000 feet. Um, advanced base camp is 21,000 feet. Uh, but there's a good... Uh, 16, 17 miles that separate the two. And the the terrain was just absolutely grueling. And so the first time we hiked from base camp to advanced base camp, we did it in in two days. Some people now do it in three days. Um, The second time, several weeks later, we did it in in one day. Um, And some people who are incredibly fit did it in six or seven hours with just blew me away. It took me about 10 or 11. <laughs> um, and, uh, so it, it's, yeah, it, it, how do I describe it? It was a, uh, an incredibly wonderful, spectacular ordeal. <laughs> My God. What if people on the team weren't, let's say as fast as you, or you said that you weren't as fast as somebody else who did something in six hours. Yeah. I mean, no one's left behind, right? Yeah, well, I mean, when you're at, at base camp or at advanced base camp, um, there isn't a lot of, you know, danger in that. Um, I mean, certainly you could, on, on the Tibetan side of Everest, um, you know, there are ways to get lost and to get injured, of course. But, you know, there there are people on the trail. Um, and, and so that's not so much a concern. It's when you get up higher, uh, above advanced base camp, um, once you actually get on the mountain proper, um, uh, the North Call. The North Call is, uh, so advanced base camp is 21,000 feet, and then climbing up the North Call, you're on the mountain, and you've got fixed ropes and, you know, crampons and ice axe, and uh, that's a couple thousand foot ascent um, on a glacier, basically. And uh, you're at 23,000 feet at the North Pole. Oh, my God. And then Camp 2 is a couple thousand feet higher. And Camp 3 is right around 27,500, 27,800 feet, or 28,000 feet. And then, of course, the summit is, um, you know, 29,028 feet, basically. <laughs> and so all of those levels take a little while to get to. Um the first time around, as far as people will acclimate to the North Call, sleep there for a few days, maybe do a quick little trek up to part way up to uh, uh, to Camp Two, and then back down, and then rest at Advanced Base Camp, um, and then maybe go all the way back down to Base Camp, rest for several days, and then wait for a summit window when um, the satellite. Uh, uh, feeds that we get and the weather updates where we get say, Hey, on during this time, there's going to be a several day window 
um, of, of clear weather because that's at the, at that point, the most important thing, because if storm con storms come when you're on the mountain high up, you know, you can easily die. So, um, yeah, then, uh, if a window appears and you, uh, trek back up to advanced base camp and <clears throat> then, uh, uh, wait for that window to appear again and then it comes up and then you, uh, do your assault on the summit and go to North Call. And then, uh, the next day go to camp, uh, two. And then the next day go to camp three and then, uh, pray that that, uh, next day is going to be, uh, a clear day and then make your summit attempt. What you're describing reminds me of rainmaking. People think rainmaking is just forcing and making things happen and pushing. And a lot of the art of rainmaking is waiting on these openings, waiting on these windows, and then stepping through them very much like you're describing being on Everest. If someone were to say, what would climbing Everest be like? The last thing I would think of is the waiting, because a lot of times the visual is just the climbing, but yeah. not the whole process. The organic process is waiting for those windows, acclimating, preparing, and then stepping through those windows. But it's so powerful what you're working with that if you don't do that, it's life and death. Yes. So really nature teaches you that. What's it like to sleep climbing Everest? What are sleeping conditions like? What's the truth about it? It's difficult. Um, you know, it's obviously cold. <laughs> and, um, you know, you're not... Oh, it, it's... It's hard to get sleep. It's hard to sleep well. Um, you know, you're cold, you're tired, you're um, not under ideal conditions. Um, yeah, it's, you know, again, it's not a picnic. You wouldn't want to take, a, you wouldn't want to have your honeymoon there. And how many people are there in a tent? Uh, it depends where you are. Um, at base camp and advanced base camp, everybody had their own tent. Um, higher up on the mountain, um, two to three people. Uh, pretend. And um, that could be very cozy, in the, uh, using the word cozy as a, uh, a nice way of putting it, because you have all of your gear, and um, uh, which is a lot. And it basically, if you're cla claustrophobic, that would be a, that would be a bad thing. Yeah, you know, you're, you're pretty much cramped in there like sardines higher up on the mountain, especially if you've got three people in the tent. Is it warmer? Uh, having an extra body, uh, perhaps. If you can deal with the other issues, right? Yeah, yeah. Did you sleep a full eight hours? Did most people sleep eight hours? Did they sleep longer or less? You have a weird sleep. So it's, um, you know, some people could, could sleep a, a full eight hours. Some people could, uh, you know, would toss and turn and have difficulty sleeping um, and getting, you know, getting any kind of real good sleep. Um, for me, I was kind of hit or miss. Sometimes I'd sleep okay. And sometimes I would be uh, quite restless. Because I can't imagine how people would function at that level of physical challenge of climbing Everest without getting sleep. I don't get it. How is that possible? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely not a sprint. It, it, it's a marathon basically. The film has been seen in over 200 countries. Um, the website's been viewed in all, all over 200 countries. Okay. The film, I don't know how many countries the film has been seen in. Um, not enough. <laughs> uh, still working on getting the international uh, distribution out there. Um, and the film uh, basically chronicles the journey 
of these nine peace climbers, but it really focuses um, on uh, the the uh, uh, the three Middle Eastern climbers: some Ali Bushnak from Palestine, Dudu Yifra uh, from Israel, and Mikhayanev from Israel. And it's not your typical film, as it starts off in the Middle East. Not your typical Everest film. It starts off in the Middle East, and I don't know any of any other Everest film that does that. And um, really, just follows these three, three these three individuals um, from their homes uh, in the Middle East uh, to Nepal to Tibet, um, pretty much to the highest uh, point on Earth. And you know, without giving away. Um, what happened um, on the expedition, uh, I guess I could just say that uh, in many ways it was very successful. Um, uh, we had uh, a couple of big scares and uh, the main scare was uh, captured on film <laughs> uh, and it, it's uh, you, know, you can uh, view that in the documentary. And uh, I think as I alluded to before, uh, I got a few more gray hairs uh, because of this. <laughs> I saw them. I saw them. And the audience really needs to get the film and see it. This is the kind of film that you want to own, not just see. And, and you know, the whole idea about the expedition um, was to, you know, to bring people together to show that in an atmosphere of peace and through friendship and teamwork, that people can overcome their obstacles. They can overcome their religious, their societal, their own prejudices and um, bond together and unite and work towards this common goal and and indeed uh, accomplish anything. I mean, even climbing, you know, the tallest mountain in the world in, in, in the name of peace. And, and so that's really what I set out to do is to show that people can, um, you know, build bridges and, and work together in, in a peaceful uh, way. And, uh, you know, I, I think the film uh, shows that. And, and from my perspective, obviously I had to have the, uh, the climb <laughs> to, to have any of this happen. But for me, the film was always my main goal because uh, a climb is something that happens, you know, during one, one period of time and then it's gone. But a film can kind of last forever. And um, so after I after we had the successful expedition and to see all the wonderful things that happened, I guess you got to go rent or buy the film. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, you definitely do. You've got to get this film. It is a one of a kind. You need to own a copy of this film and show it to everybody. You know, I love it also that you're having people do screenings all over. Is that still going on? Yeah. So, um, what, uh, what I do is I do speaking gigs. Um, and uh, usually they're incorporated with a screening of the film. So people want, whether it be at their school or their organization or at their company, they want to, they want me to come and they'll often have me uh, bring the film. I'll introduce the uh, the film usually at the beginning for you know a few minutes, mm -hmm. and then we'll show the sixty minute film. And then afterwards, we uh, always have a uh, Q and A. A, a lengthy and interactive and uh, usually quite animated uh, question and answer period because people always have uh, lots and lots of questions. And um, so, yeah, uh, if people are interested, um, you know, I'm certainly uh, love to, to screen my film um, to, again, to organizations or to schools um, or to companies. 
And uh, right now, uh, the film, uh, as I was mentioning before, you know, my main goal was to really get this film out there. And and it was kind of my dream to get this on national television um, in the United States. And that was kind of the next step. It's like, okay, I, I got the climbers. <laughs> I got the funding. I did the climb. It was a successful climb. Now I got to get funding once again to get this thing on DVD. I have a quick question before you talk about the DVD part. Uh, Who shot this and what did you shoot it in? Um, it was uh, our main camera guy um, was Brad Clement. Um, he, was, uh, he had filmed on Everest a couple of times before. And Brad was kind of like a Zen master. <laughs> he did a wonderful job. And I want to know what he shot it in, because probably not every camera could be in Everest, right? Yeah, well, uh, to, to, to get back to, to, to Brad first, I mean, he, uh, um, he was kind of a Zen master without the Zen. In other words, he was just uh, a very calm, relaxed guy. And I remember um, he called me. Uh, I was um, actually I didn't. A lot of people are kind of uh, tripped out about this, but uh, I didn't summit. I didn't even attempt to summit. Um, I didn't want the expedition to be about me. And, uh, I felt that if I tried to climb the mountain, that, uh, that could get kind of lost. Um, and so I stayed back at advanced base camp to act as the kind of the main, the, the main point of contact, um, the manager, so to speak. And, um, and the person who was getting the, um, the satellite and weather updates. And I was forwarding those to uh, the climbers up above. So it was me. My main thing was to be uh, the support mechanism for the team. Wow. And um, so I'd actually emailed everybody before we even uh, left for the expedition and, and let them know that I wouldn't even attempt to summit. Um, and I didn't even bring my um, summit gear because I didn't want to get summit fever at the last second. So uh, I just made sure that... Um, that I wouldn't even attempt. So I, my, my summit was the North call. I just made it to, uh, I just went up to 23,000 feet, uh, with the team. And then I said, Hey guys, you know, I'm, I'm happy with this. Now I'm going to go back and, and, um, you know, be there for you. That's still incredible. 23,000 feet. Wow. Yeah. It's, you know, not bad, but, um, so, uh, getting a call from, Brad, he was uh, heading towards the summit, um, day four of the uh, uh, of the summit push, and so I'm like, uh, "This is Lance, over." And he said, "Hey, Lance, this is, this is Brad." I'm like, "Hey, Brad." He goes, "Hey, Lance." I was like, "Brad, are, are you at the beach or, or are you uh, are you twenty eight thousand feet on Everest?" He just had absolutely, you know, he, he, there was no sense of. Uh, being tired or, or, or having any sense of exhaustion. He was just like, yeah, I'm going to head up now to the summit and uh, you know, I'll be there in a couple hours. <laughs> wow. Like, oh my God. So yeah, Brad was, was, uh, was uh, a wonderful camera guy on the mountain. Um, also we equipped um, one of our Sherpas, Namgel Sherpa. I gave him a camera, uh, just basically showed him how to, how to film and he turned out to be an amazing camera guy. Uh, he also took a bunch of wonderful uh, images as well. And then I had a camera, and I filmed um, a fair amount of the expedition uh, as well. 
And so, and then a couple of other climbers had some, some cameras. And so basically uh, it was definitely a full team effort of, uh, uh, of making this thing happen. Wow. Unfortunately, back in 2006, when we filmed this, um, lightweight, affordable HD cameras um, weren't the norm. And uh, so we filmed this in uh, mini DV. So it's um, not uh, not the full HD resolution. Still looks great. Yeah, it, it still looks good. So you know, I'm, I'm quite happy with that. Nowadays, everything is cheap and, and uh, simple and but, you know, you go with what you have. And uh, so, uh, you know, I, I was very pleased how everything came out and everything that could have gone wrong didn't uh, in, in regards to the filming. Um, and we just really lucked out uh, in many, many ways. So, yeah, Brad did a did a phenomenal job. And um, so quite happy about that. But going back to, again to what I was, um, there's so many different things to to, to, to talk about. Uh, it, it had been my mission really to get this on national television. And, um, but, bef- but before that, I thought, well, I'm going to put this on DVD first. And so once again, having to fundraise and, you know, people would be throwing money at me because I had this successful expedition and, you know, this really meaningful um, adventure uh, caught on film and, you know, Orlando Bloom was going to narrate it. And, but, once again, it took many, 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 many months to to get funding uh, to to do the post production um, for the film, and you know it's hard to do something meaningful, um, but uh, again, persistence and uh, and passion that really paid off. And uh, so then the uh, DVD came out, and during this whole time, I was still trying to get the film on national television. And just recently, after a couple of years of pushing and pushing and pushing. Um, I got a deal with uh, PBS and the film is now currently nationwide um, on U.S. television, on uh, public, uh, on PBS uh, stations. And um, it's been wonderful. The film in three months has been shown over 1,100 times um, across the U.S. And that's unheard of. I mean, it's just getting phenomenal airtime and there's still three more years of screenings. Um, now I don't know, uh, when these screens are going to happen. Um, so at this point, uh, it's just, you know, call your local PBS station and say, Hey, show Everest to climb for peace. And of course, uh, you know, you can get the DVD as well and, uh, you know, watch what, uh, what we did, uh, uh, on film. How extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Do you want to go back? Yeah, actually, one of the things I wanted to mention to your audience um, is this April, just right around the corner, I'm doing a base camp trek, a trek to Everest Base Camp in Nepal. We climb from the Tibetan side. Um, The trek to Nepal is absolutely phenomenal. Um, Two and a half weeks of culture, of... um, beauty of just absolutely amazing vistas that, you know, things that you, you can only dream about seeing. And uh, so I'm leading a, a trek for peace um, in April and still have some availability uh, for clients. So if people want to come, uh, by all means, let me know. Uh, the website is 
www.everestpeaceproject.org, everestpeaceproject.org. And to go to base camp, you don't need to be, you know, uh, a hero climber. You just need to, to be adventurous and, of course, to be fit. It's a non-technical climb. So, um, you know, it, you need to, in a perfect world, you need to have, of course, some experience. Um, but you don't need any climbing uh, skill and that there's you know, nothing technical that's going to happen. Um, no ice climbing or anything like that. So that's in April. And then in July, I'm doing a uh, climb of Kilimanjaro. Oh, my God. And that's going to be really fun. And there's availability uh, on that uh, climb as well. And once again, that's a non-technical climb. Um, It's high, 19,000 feet. So, again, you have to be fit and very adventurous. But um, even the layperson um, uh, can can do this climb um, as long as, again, they're – you know, have some experience. How high is the Nepal climb? Uh, the trek to base camp on the Nepalese side is 17,000 to 300 feet. And then we'll be also climbing to this little trekking peak, um, a thousand feet above uh, base camp, uh, which is really cool. And that's called Kalapatar. And it's about 18,000 to 300 feet. And it has the most phenomenal view of Everest. You're on this little uh, trekking peak. You're looking down at Everest Base Camp and the entire Kumbu Glacier. And you're looking directly at or up at um, Mount Everest and uh, Nupse and Lhotse and all these other incredible mountains. And, um, yeah, it's uh, an adventure not to be missed if you uh, have the time and energy and money and wherewithal to, to make that happen. But, um, so yeah, go to, if you check out our website, everestpeaceproject.org, you can, uh, see information about both, uh, both journeys. And certainly we'd love to have you, uh, come along with us. Wow. Sounds incredible. I really love what you're doing and what you've set in motion. I look forward to having you back to talk to us after some of these treks. Is there anything else you'd like to say in closing? One thing I'm fond of saying, and I think it's really true, that it's um, through actions of peace that peace is spread. And you, know, you don't have to climb Everest um, to uh, make a bold action. I mean, to me, an action of peace is could be getting involved in your community, could be um, volunteering at a homeless shelter or being a big brother or a big sister or getting involved in... Um, uh, the lives of those who you love. Um, uh, so I, I think, um, you know, that's a, an important statement um, is that it's through actions of peace that peace is spread. And I hope that people can, uh, you know, who see the film or who hear this conversation can kind of um, take that outward and kind of spread their own actions of peace, whatever that may be. And, uh, you know, try to make the world just a little bit better place um, and, and do what they can to improve their lives and improve the lives of others. And I think that's all that's all we can do uh, in this uh, crazy existence of ours is to bring a little bit of happiness to ourselves and, and to those uh, around us. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been speaking with, listening to and learning from Mr. Trumbull. We have been talking about the Everest Peace Project and Lance Trumbull's experience putting the whole project together. 
the motivation behind it and the experience of it. If you'd like to be in contact with him or to go on the trek to Nepal in July, you can contact him at everestpeaceproject.org. And Lance, God bless you for what you've done and what you've set in motion. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you very much. Many blessings. It's rainmaking time. (laughs) 